This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Today, we interview a Christian sociologist who says digital natives aren't as native as we think. Is there any hope for the rest of us? She says yes. It's device in virtue. Welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, Adam, today I've got a cool interview with a sociologist, Christian sociologist named Dr. Felicia Wu Song. Oh, yeah. We met she got her. She a new book, right? She does have a new book. It's called Restless Devices. We met her a couple of years ago at the Center for Pastoral Theologians Conference. Yes, the Tech Night Conference, which we interviewed some people at and right. had an episode on that was way back when. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we should go pull that archive and listen to it. I think it's just called Tech Nay, right? Yeah, Tech Nay with the Greek word. <laughs> it was season two or three. But she was there. She spoke. We both really enjoyed her talk, and I'm really excited that she has a book out now because I got a chance to read the book, and it is fantastic. She's a college professor and a sociologist, but she definitely knows college student lingo <laughs> and just sort of what it's like to live in digital culture and sort of what it's like for us to feel the sort of despair, <laughs> that's a really strong word, but <laughs> oppression or like the whole digital life like is, is a lot of work. It's like inboxes constantly. Yeah, She's thinking about yeah. how this affects us. Her starter insight is when you're feeling something on your own, as a sociologist, she goes, it's not probably just you. It's a problem probably with the whole society. Ooh. And so how can we get out of it? That's really great. Yeah. So listen to the interview and pick up her book a little bit and tell me what you think after we're done. All right. Well, I'm here with Dr. Felicia Wu Song, who is a cultural sociologist of media and digital technology, currently serving as a professor of sociology at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. So glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Is Santa Barbara have warm weather? I'm in Chicago. It's cold. <laughs> I, I always um, am, am embarrassed uh, to talk about the weather over here, but yes, because I, I am always cognizant that other people have weather and we don't. <laughs> so yes, it's, it's very nice here. How long have you been in, at Westmont College? This is my ninth year. Oh, yeah. wow. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And teaching undergrads, graduates both? Yep. Yeah. We are an undergraduate liberal arts college. Right. Wonderful. You and I, two years ago, spoke at the Center for Pastor Theologians Conference on yeah. technology, and you were doing the main stage. I was like a panelist, but uh, but I realized I did, we didn't get to meet then, so I'm so glad that you and I get to meet yeah, now. Yeah, totally. Yes. And the reason for us getting together is because you have a new book. It is called mm -hmm. Restless Devices, Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Love the title. Love this book quite a lot. I wanted to ask you just to start. You're a full-time professor of sociology. You also mentioned in your book that you are a full-time parent. Mm -hmm. And you say in your book, these are related because you can never clock out of either. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I would love to know just a little bit more about your life and where the idea from this book came from, more your personal life or more your mm. professional life as a sociologist? 
Yeah. So I have been a professor for, let's see, over 15 years now. I'm married to another professor who's a philosopher who actually, I think the fact that we're both academics makes our life possible, the way that we run our life. And so we have two teenagers now. Oh wow! Um, okay. And so plenty of smartphones. Yeah, in the we house, we are maybe? we are we are in the trenches. Yes, <laughs> we're deep. <laughs> we're deep in it all with everyone else. And you know, we're originally from the East Coast, but have spent a fair bit of time in the South and Westmont. Coming out to California to teach out here is really our first stint on the West Coast. When you were thinking about doing this book, does that come from some of the your teenagers or you having your phones <laughs> at home, or does it come for you as a professional sociologist looking? at culture and technology, which I know you've been doing for a long while. Yeah. So the book really is part of a a much longer journey of an interest in media and technology and how it impacts our sense of identity, community, Mm. and relationships. That's really Mm. why I even went to graduate school and wanted to learn more about just how how this works. Because I shortly after college, I had started thinking about how it is that we live in a society that doesn't really talk about these things. We don't talk Mm. about how media and technology are impacting us. And so, yeah, that got me interested. But then the book itself really started crystallizing in my mind as I had more opportunities to speak to different groups of churches and pastors, much like the conference we we were at mm-hmm, together. Mm-hmm. And it was always the Q&A times and the times after the talks where I met people and sure. started hearing their experiences, their frustrations, their puzzling, whether they were parents or pastors or young professionals, right. whoever they were. It was it was strikingly similar. People were in in some general sense of despair, <laughs> despair <laughs> over over yeah. yeah over just kind of being overwhelmed and being like I don't know what I'm I don't know what to do and big questions about you know wh- where is this all leading us and so as a sociologist it just felt like well I I think sociology is a discipline that can offer some handholds for giving people some tools for thinking about okay what's actually going on. And then as a person of faith, just being increasingly convinced that Christianity is an incredibly rich source Hmm. of theological and historical practices that can respond to this moment that I think so many people recognize in their lives. I think a lot of people would feel that the church is like really can't respond to this moment. Mm-hmm. Like the Apple is releasing the iPhone 13 and the church <laughs> is figuring out the PowerPoint, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, as I started writing the book, it did increasingly become clear too that, hey, you know, this is a conversation that that is not only absent in American society, but it is also largely absent in the church mm-hmm. and, and wanting to find a way to increase awareness of the, the deep need, I think, we have for better instruction, better understanding of what role devices play in our lives. And for me, I'm particularly interested in how our digital routines and habits are actually forms of discipleship, I would argue, unintended discipleship in deep right. ways. Right. And, I, and, I, and that's the kind of thing I think I feel in myself, I see around me, and it's a big question of just like, well, where is this all leading us if it's left unchecked? 
You divide your book, Restless Devices, into two parts. The mm -hmm. first part focusing sort of on the problem, you know, the, <laughs> the experience of the digital ecology. You talk about it almost like being like we're at a in the heights, up at, uh, at a higher elevation where it's like you can sort of feel something's different, but you're not quite sure what. Right. And then you have a second mm -hmm. part focusing on the solutions, things mm -hmm. that you sort of see might be answers to that. And in the whole midst of this, you add these practical exercises in the mm -hmm. book that an individual could approach about, you know, how to use their iPhone or things, which I really love. Mm -hmm. But I wondered if we could start by sort of talking about the problem kind of things that you talk yeah. about in the first part of the book. Mm -hmm. I really was drawn to this one part. You said so many people see so many big issues right now with the, being in Facebook and being online. You list something things that I think people identify with, political polarization, extremism, mm -hmm. racism, addiction, pornography. And you said your book doesn't really address those. It's attempting to get at what lies beneath all those. Mm -hmm. So what lies beneath? The book really tries to get at the underlying logic that functions at the base of the media platforms and networks that we're on and the ways in which the digital services and media platforms are designed, how they, okay. how they call us to participate in them, hmm. right? And the, the way that they are structured to guide the kinds of interactions or guide the ways that we interact with information. That's the part that I'm interested in okay. less in the the actual content of what's being said or viewed or consumed and more what is happening to us when we are consistently drawn in to participate on social media or watch YouTube videos in the ways that that uh, these platforms are designed to do. When you say that it's not specifically the content, you know, of course, we're yeah. reminded of Marshall McLuhan right. talking talking about, uh, he says, content is the red meat that distracts the dog <laughs> while the robber comes in and steals everything, right? Totally. Because uh, <laughs> he says the bigger issue is sort of the presence of everything or the environment. Mm -hmm. As a so what are the tools that a sociologist uses to look at that kind of thing? I think what sociology offers is the capacity to see beyond the, the sort of physical device or just the the the, the website or uh, the service right what we always see is the systems or the structures that are mm. behind the tool right so so many of us when we're interacting with our technologies we're interacting with the product whether it's the physical device or it's the product of the platform um, that we're engaged in. And it's really easy when we're thinking about how it's impacting us to only look at the surface of it, right? And forget that there is this digital media industry behind the platform, that there mm -hmm. is a context of American culture and all of its values and consumer culture that are behind it. And so it's a it's a lesson that we always uh, teach our intro to social students about how when we're individually struggling with things, C. Wright Mill says, you know, we all have personal troubles. But when you look around and you see everyone has the same personal trouble, then mm. you're actually what you're actually starting to see is a public issue. And that public issue is rooted not in necessarily the 
flaws or the particularities of an individual's experience, though it often is, of course. But what we need to look at is what's happening structurally, what's happening systemically, mm. what's mm. going on in Silicon Valley? What do these companies, what are they designing for? Right. What right. are the assumptions? What are the cultural assumptions that seem to not even be questioned that are at work behind the ways that these technologies are designed? So you're saying if I'm laying in bed before bed and still scrolling TikTok and I realize it's 30 minutes past <laughs> I wanted to be in bed, uh, then I'm also discovering that every single person I know is talking about doing the same thing, that yeah. it might be a bigger issue than just me. Yeah, right. <laughs> totally. Right. It's not just your own lack of will, right? But there's something. I mean, thing. TikTok's so great, though. I know. <laughs> I know. It has our number. I mean, it's to we're to they're totally dialed in. To us. And but that's what's fascinating, right? Because I think so much of of even the when when people do talk about technology in the United States, we kind of have this narrative, right? Like it's so for a long time, I, I think it's changing, but for a long time it's been, oh, you know, these companies have built these wonderful technologies, they're connecting us, there's all these wonderful things that are happening. And there's these weird unintended consequences. People are getting addicted. They're getting involved in these, you know, vices or these problems are emerging with our young people. And there was a sense of like, oh, we didn't know that was going to happen. They didn't know it was going to happen. Right? <laughs> right? right. But now increasingly, right over the now, especially this past year, but even years past, right, there's been more and more evidence of, wait a second. No, they knew. You know, they mm. knew from the beginning that this was going to happen because they designed it this way. This is not an actual surprise. This is not an actual surprise. They designed it for addiction. They designed it knowing the behavioral science, the neuroscience behind it, you know. And if they didn't know it, they went out to find it, right? They've hired casino consultants. They have hired the best of the psychologists. Casino consultants. Yeah, right. And so that's kind of like, wait, you're hiring casino consultants, <laughs> right? <It's> like, <laughs> right? You're like, okay, that's what we see this as, right? Yeah, yeah. and it wasn't just to build really beautiful neon signs. That wasn't what it was, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, like there's a reason why when my thumb keeps on scrolling down to hmm. refresh my feed that it feels like a slot machine. It, it's the same thing, you know, it's the same sort of gaze and just getting lost in that space that's the same as the casino experience. I want to ask you about this term, the terms that people sometimes use and I use on the podcast, digital native and digital immigrant, which are terms yeah. that have been sourced from different places. But I know of Martin Prinsky, who was an educator who wrote those partly originally. And we talk, of course, about a digital uh, immigrant being someone that learned these technologies later in life. And we say that they might have a different way of interacting with them than a mm -hmm. digital native, someone that's younger, certainly are, are, are Gen Zers who mm -hmm. have grown up with the internet their whole life. You write about this a little bit, but I'm curious about what you've noticed in your classroom. You say in your mm -hmm. book that digital natives aren't adjusting natively to a digital environment. Do you think that distinction isn't useful? You know, I think it's useful to the extent that it recognizes the ways in which 
there are some distinctions that is for those of us Gen Xers and up, right? Like there is still, you know, because we remember a time when there wasn't, right? Sure. The right. Internet. I'm trying to hold on to the Xennial. I'm right in the middle. Yeah, right on. <laughs> I, had, I had internet in like high school, just barely. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Right. That those of us who are squarely in, in the digital immigrant category, there. There is still a little bit of a gee whiz, you know, <laughs> capacity, right? Because it's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, like, right, right. how does this actually work? Right. And and so that distinction is is true. And I certainly mm-hmm. see that in my kids, you know, their experiences with the digital are, are quite different. But I, I think what's not helpful is to presume that simply being the digital native means that you're going to adapt easily or well, or that it's actually going to lead to a life of well-being. I mean, I think that's what was mm-hmm. always assumed in that digital native distinction of the the quote-unquote naturalness of it would lead to a, a quality of well-being that those of us who are immigrants would always feel some kind of dissonance about, right? right? That we would always feel sort of out of sorts or something. But I think what I find with my students, and I think it's just what our digital practices drive us to is that, no, they're just as anxious and stressed and sleep deprived as most human beings have been, and arguably even worse because of the digital, actually, right? Sure. Um, so there's, so it's not that they're, you know, they don't experience dissonance because something's new or unfamiliar, but it's just that the practices and the expectations that they actually have with each other as peers is so high. The expectation huh. to constantly be available to to huh. respond in timely fashions. Huh. I mean, that that is some serious high stakes chronic expectation that they're living with. Absolutely. But don't you think they're more, you know, I want to argue back and say, but they're but they're used to it. They're they're not. They didn't we're up in a world where we go to work and we uh, work just stops at nine to five and then you go home and you forget about everything that they're they're sort of it's normal. Yeah, I don't know if it's normal. I mean, I, I, I think it's they may not know anything else. Right. right? As uh, Which is I take your point. But I I'm not sure that they are content or happy about that. Right. right. Most of them right. actually express a sense of feeling trapped. Yeah. And they're so used to it, I would argue, in fact, that they don't know how to not live this way, right? Like that that feeling of trapped, being trapped, it's like, I don't know how to get out of this. I can't imagine how to stop this, but I, it's overwhelming. I can't keep up. I physically can't keep up with this. So you're saying that you're sensing something that they don't even really know. They're wanting something that they don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's and it's hard to imagine what it would be like to make adjustments in the ways that they use their digital services and practices. It's hard to know what that could even look like because they've never done it. You know, and they've never yeah. seen many models even of how else you can do it because everyone's just kind of we all we've all kind of hopped on and and are on the twenty four seven ride. 
you know, I was a campus pastor for years back in the day. But I mean, this was a long time ago. This was really <laughs> before iPhones, although we were in the generation that got Facebook. So I have a 2004 Facebook account because nice. all my students were getting them at the same time. Yeah. But I, you know, I've often thought that there will be an adjustment and that things will change and that there will be less cantankerous, cranky old folks sort of saying <laughs> the internet is all bad and it's destroying our lives and that, yeah. you know, the younger generation will be more adjusted. The one hiccup I've always wanted to add to this has like, mm. well, people's teachers had not changed yet. And the education means quite mm. a lot. And mm. whether it's professors or mm. secondary mm -hmm. education. And so you have a lot of hand wringing at that level going, you know, people are sourcing from Wikipedia, right. yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> but you have digital immigrants teaching digital natives. And so we don't get a true digital native output, maybe for another mm -hmm. generation. That's my argument there. But I say that not having you're with college students every day now, and I no longer am. And you, it sounds like mm. you're seeing the anxiety, the, the needs in everyday yeah. life and and, and so it's not really working out the way I want it to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I would say that shift has only happened in the last three or four years, max. Huh. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I think is interesting because it's, I feel like it's taken time to kind of get to a certain level of, you know, the students that I'm meeting now, they've had their phones since they were 12 or 10. They've been active wow. since they were, you know, grade <laughs> school, right? Sure, right? So they've they've just had a longer run up, you know, and they've gone through junior high and high school, you know, and all the stuff that happens with that. And the the interfaces that they have now are also different, right? TikTok's like a fundamentally different ball game, as was yeah. Snapchat. Right. right. You know, right. keeping up a snap streak is is like a part time job. Right. Because, <laughs> I mean, if you've got 40 people to keep that snap streak with, I mean, that's all that's you're just constantly <laughs> tending, you know, for any of us that's old enough to remember the Tamagotchi pets, you know, <laughs> these little oh, wow. robotic, you know, yeah, yeah, smelly yeah. things that you had to feed. I know. I mean, it's totally ridiculous. Right. You had to take care of it or it would die. That's what I right. always say is the equivalent now of the snap streak. It's like that's these funny. young people tending their snap streaks. It's like the Tamagotchi pet that's going to die. And some people you know? won't even know snap streak. It's like it's on Snapchat when you're talking back and forth, right, with, with somebody. Right. Um, and you have and, to respond within 24 hours or else you break the streak and you get right, all these rewards right, every time right, your streak goes right. longer. You have a couple of terms in the book that are really, they're interesting. What is meant by infinite novelty? Yeah, so I use that term to get at the ways in which it's hard for us to break away from our digital habits because there's always something new. There's always, right. there's an infinite amount of novel content, whether you're looking for entertainment or if you're thinking about your email box, right? Sure, <laughs> just, sure. There's just always something to respond to. There's always a message. And so, and the feed is always getting refreshed. There's always a new update. There's always something to do, right? So it's, it's, hard, it's hard to break away. And, and many of us often live with this sense of, I can't keep up, right? I'm always chasing. I'm always behind. And that, that can start to weigh on us. You have another term here, which I, I like and I've not heard it from someone named Barry Wellman, but it's um, called networked individualism. What does that mean? So networked individualism gets at the way in which our contemporary digital platforms, they're structured in a way that centers the individual 
quite explicitly. For example, when we are on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, right? Our experience of being in that space is that we are the center, the individual is at the center, and then we have these articulated social contacts and networks that fan out sure. from us. And we're we're in the cockpit, right? We're like we're driving the yeah. plane. And and so what networked individualism gets at is the way in which individualism is something that a lot of people say characterizes American society, right? There's tons sure. of things that have been right. written about lots <laughs> right. of different kinds of individualism. But I think what's helpful about Wellman's point is that those norms, those expectations of how to understand how one is located in society actually gets designed into our technologies so that it's always reinforcing it, right? We're always constantly having that individualism reinforced. Like I'm at the center of my community. And like when I think community, I don't think of a collective. I think of I'm at the center and then it fans out to these different like orbits and patches of networks. That's how we think about community now. Are we building American individualism into these platforms, essentially, in that sense? In really deep ways. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean, and Wellman, I mean, what's I think maybe what's helpful is to realize Barry Wellman actually started as a sociologist of cities and communities. So he was okay. someone who studied bricks and mortar cities and communities. Oh, I see. Okay. And then he went and then he like shifted to doing online work. So I think what he's interested in is the way in which our imaginations about the collective experience of cities and communities has been transforming as we have moved into the digital. Years ago, I was doing talks on Facebook and 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 theology. I used to be a big critiquer of sermons because they would say everything's about you and you control. Mm-hmm. This was a typical mm-hmm. sermon critique mm-hmm. line. I, you put up your profile photo, and it's very vain. Mark Zuckerberg at that time was talking about the social graph quite a lot and mm-hmm. how we're going to mirror real life relationships, mm-hmm. which is very different than the anonymous sort yes. of chat board sort of world of the of the 90s or something. Totally. And we're using our real names. I'm clicking who my mom is and my dad is on Facebook. I have real friends. And I, I was saying pastors are getting it wrong. They're not looking ahead. But the friendship network, mm-hmm. the relational web, it's going to be mirrored mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And it's not false. It's actually true. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's part mm-hmm. of being true. Mm-hmm. And you don't actually have as much control or you have maybe about the same amount of control Mm -hmm. as you do when we present ourselves to our family or these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing in this setup is that we come back around to a sense where it's individualistic again. The old world where Zuckerberg, and I was a fan early on, no no one kill me. Um, (laughs) When he talked about that, I was like, yeah, this is a good idea. This is more human Mm -hmm. because it's real relationships and it's real names. And now I wonder, maybe it is all an illusion of of network with individualism in there as well. Do you see where I'm coming from where I thought the the real relational networks were really going to be modeled in (laughs) in Facebook? Well, I I mean, I would say that the brilliance of Facebook and other social media platforms is that it has mapped onto our real relationships. That's the brilliance because now we can't get out. Like, because now it's completely enmeshed and to pull out is like, is like tearing of skin. Right. I mean, it's, it's it's like what it means to be a good friend, what it means to be a good parent, what it means to be a good employee so often means being on these platforms sure, now. Right. It's one and the same, 
right? You said, I think in the book that you shut down or deleted your Facebook um, for a while. And then, of course, you found out, like most people do, like friends had wanted you to see their vacation photos <laughs> or there might be other important things that we actually find are we're missing. Yes. Yes. Real costs involved, <laughs> right. Right? right? When we step away. And so I think from the from the industry side, it was the brilliant move, right? Because now we can't leave without significant costs. But back to your story about the pastors who who talked about the control that we have, mm -hmm. I don't think we have increased control. Mm -hmm. The actor who has agency in the situation is the company, is the platform. It's the social media platform that is, is exercising the most amount of control, I would argue, over how we experience life. Because all the sorts of interactions I'm having are having to happen within the parameters and the structures of how that platform is designed, right? And it's designed for the attention economy, right? It's got all these feedback and affirmation loops of likes, retweets. And I would argue it knows us so well that we long for the affirmation. We long for to know that we belong to this particular community or, or network of friends, but that the degree to which the feedback and the algorithms now are engineered to keep us on the platforms and engaged suggests that actually it's the companies that have a lot more fundamental control than we actually do. I think you're right. I think it's easy to blame. You know, one worry I have about the answer that the companies have all the control and we have pictures of Congress grilling, you know, the heads of Twitter <laughs> yeah. and Facebook and not not even understanding sort of the basics of how it works. But you sort of get this picture of, of them sort of trying to solve the problems by getting the companies to change the things. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I don't think we have a lot of agency. I'm not sure the companies have as much agency as we might want because maybe we could solve it through regulation if they have a lot of agency, but it feels like they built roads. Roads create structures, they create directions mm -hmm. that things go, but they don't create traffic. You say they're not surprised, but we do have some of them going, we didn't realize where this was going to go. Yeah, yeah. This got bigger than us in yeah, some yeah, ways. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm partial to some of that explanation in mm. terms of I'm a little bit of a soft determinist with technology, meaning that big technologies that have affected cultures, you know, mm. back from the printing press and the telegraph mm. and mm. then Facebook have these outsized impacts that not any one person controls and that they are <laughs> they're a good explainer of why certain other seemingly unrelated historical things happen. Yeah, no, I, I see I see what you're saying. And I and I think maybe some of my upset <laughs> is feeling like if they didn't know it was going to happen, they were incredibly naive, Interesting. Um, incredibly yeah. naive yeah. about history. Like if, if you knew your history, you'd know how things might go. Mm -hmm. Incredibly naive about human nature, you know, like, oh, people are just going to use this for good you know, Arab Spring, like incredible, amazing uses of social, you know, the, the early 2000s, you know, everybody was like, oh my gosh, like social media is going to bring about democracy everywhere, right? right. Yeah. And, but even then, there were already people seeing how that same technology was already being used to act back on the activists, right? Like that the authoritarian governments already then, even though that, mm -hmm. that storyline was consistently buried, 
like buried, buried, buried. So right, right? away we, we were seeing because we didn't want to know. Yeah. We didn't want to know. Hmm. We didn't want to think about what human nature is and how diverse you know, uses of these digital practices could be. Maybe some of it is that just by disposition, I'm a very cautious person. (laughs) So I'm the kind of person that thinks about like the 20 million possible scenarios that can happen, right? That where things can go wrong. And I want to make sure that like that doesn't happen. And there's a downside to that. I understand. I I make very slow decisions. Um, (laughs) I I guess this is a, a, a good argument for sort of the two cultures, liberal arts approach, which is like, hey, let's get philosophers and historians and sociologists in the room with the engineers, you know, like everyone has incredible amount of skills and perspectives to bring to this. But let's let's bring them in conversation, right up in the beginning, right in the early stages, you know, especially with the internet before the money starts flowing in. You know, because once the money starts coming in, it starts to drive the conversation. Well, that's the catch 22, right? Because the money has to appear before we develop. Yeah, right. And so, (laughs) you know, I realizing I need to ask you about how we solve all this. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. In part two of the book, and folks are going to have to go check out Restless Devices, but you have a series of exercises you call the Freedom Project to help us get free of the tyranny of the digital, as you call it. You see the problem as societal, although you're helping individuals with these sort of exercises. Can individuals really climb out of a societal structure? And what, what are some of your solutions to this? Well, I, I don't think that we can climb out of a societal structure because it's our society. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong way to say it. But, um, yeah. but I think we can find ways to resist certain aspects of it, especially if we find that it's having a negative or impoverishing effect on us. And I think we can 
take certain steps to not simply be kind of pushed around by the default modes of the okay. technologies and, and the kinds of uh, practices that often go with them. And so I think small adjustments in our life can, can start to make substantial differences. You have a term you use called counter-liturgies. Mm -hmm. Liturgy, of course, from the church. What do you mean by counter-liturgies and what's an example? Yeah, so I'm borrowing that from Jamie Smith's work sure, right. from Desiring the Kingdom and You Are What You Love. And, and he argues that Christians should not only think about removing the what he calls the secular liturgies, the liturgies that train us in the wrong direction, but to be active in filling our lives with counter liturgies, liturgies that actually push back against very often the the cultural assumptions or practices that we might just find ourselves doing without much reflection. And so I think counter liturgies, I like to think concretely in terms of how we can create space, like physical spaces in okay. which we are freed from the sorts of demands and pressures of the digital and also times, right? So sacred times and sacred spaces box out you might say, right? Kind of box out like, hey, in this space, because we're having a meal together, or I am sleeping, <laughs> or I am going to uh, rest and delight in going on a run or gardening or whatever embodied practice I have, right? Sure. That these sorts of attempts to kind of box out spaces and time to undo some of the dynamics that would typically happen when we're just constantly online can can make a difference. You know, near the end of your book, you have actually a really fun quote by Greg McEwen that says, I wonder if my tombstone will read, he checked email. <laughs> and of course, probably not. We want more than that. I think a lot of folks feel sort of the intensity of the things that are coming at us. And, and we see the general societal problem. But there's just this overall picture of how will we live? And it feels like a lot to lift, right? But as a Christian sociologist, you're bringing together both your experience as a Christian and your, your professional view. At the end of the day, what do you want Christians to know on how they can live? I think for, for people of faith... I think it's important to start recognizing the kind of story that we we start to live into when we merely do all that everybody else is doing with their digital practices. I think th there's a certain story that we live into, which is driven by the attention economy, right? Which is time is scarce, attention is scarce. We got to work hard, got to maximize every moment, optimize every opportunity, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. A lot of us feel that. But when you turn around and you actually think about what the promise of the Christian faith is, it's actually completely the opposite, right? It's like, no, we're, we're supposed to be a people who live into abundance and into the grace of our weaknesses and, and realizing that even with all my flaws, I'm still welcome to the table, right? Wow, and that there is right. always a feast that is, is there for me. And I think many of us 
are are struggling to know, like, how do I live into that? Right? Like, what does that even mean? Like, I can say the words, I can hear a great sermon and be inspired. But how do I actually live into that, given mm. the way my everyday life actually feels? Part of what we can be doing is making these adjustments in our digital practices that square out space to reconnect to some of that abundance and reconnect to some of the feasting that is actually all around us. If we give ourselves a chance to see it, that is like the people around us, the incredible natural surrounding that some of us might be um, Mm -hmm. living within the, you know, the smallness of craft work or cooking or making with our hands embodied in our body, in our physical bodies, all of this stuff is good. And it often falls to the wayside when we are just kind of driven to keep up with all of our practices on our screens. So my hope for the the person of faith is that in in listening to this podcast or, or reading the book, they they would have their appetite actually kind of wet and be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, there's something else, right? There's actually something yeah. else. Yeah. And I and I want a piece of it. And so let's let's get going. It's wonderful. And I love the Eucharistic picture, the picture of the table. We're invited to not only sort of remember the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through, but also the the invitation to peace. Mm-hmm. And the invitation to sit down and have dinner <laughs> and yeah. and be with um, be with God and be with other mm-hmm. and that's that is a sh- strong counter narrative maybe mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. fact that my email notifications have just gone up by another hundred yeah <laughs> well it's so good to hear your thoughts on this I think people are going to be very interested in the book from IVP Academic again it's called uh, Restless Devices. Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Thank you so much for writing it, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a real pleasure. Adam, (laughs) my total interview with Dr. Felicia and her book, Restless Devices. What do you think? I really enjoyed it. You know, listening to Dr. Wusong, I really resonated with a lot of her own sort of personal story as to why she as being a parent of teenagers intre- yeah <laughs> no, no 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 as as <laughs> as she got sort of interested in these questions around media technology christianity the church and you know she talked about the ways that that impacts our identity our community our relationships you know she went to graduate school for that and i went to graduate school for that i didn't get a phd like she did but i <laughs> I really resonated with that. And then she talks about how... Did I I tell you that she has a book on her shelf? We were emailing and she said she has Marshall McLuhan, Chris's favorite guy, (laughs) Marshall McLuhan's book called The Medium is the Massage, yeah, which is like a weird 70s version that included the medium is the message kind of language about it. It's like weird typography, just like it's all 70s, 60s. It's a super quirky book. She talked about finding that book on a shelf and getting her interested in things. Yeah, years ago. That's what intrigued her. her, I was like, I have that book too. I've got like this original (laughs) version. So yeah, and then she trained as a sociologist and was interested in those same Mm. things. Really cool. Marshall McLuhan really is the gateway drug, isn't he? (laughs) I I think he is. Yeah, that was, I think, yeah, his book was the second book I read when I sort of got into this. Yeah, totally. But, you know, she talked about how our digital routines and habits are themselves forms of discipleship. 
regardless right, right. of the content that we're consuming, just the practices right. that we engage in. Right, right. And I just so resonated with that. You know, I really tried to write my dissertation around this concept of the internet as a formative experience, the mm-hmm. just engaging with the internet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really, I think, maybe connects with one of the things that she talks about in the book. Actually, you guys talked about infinite novelty. Mm. Another term that she used in the book was permanent connectivity. Oh, okay. And she sort of described it as this imminent sense of the digital. And I really liked that phrasing. Right. You know, we even think about the imminent sense of God's presence, right, in the world. And we try and be aware of his imminence. But, you know, today we have this imminent sense of the digital world and just this idea that even when our smartphones are off and our computers are off, we have this awareness that the digital exists and something is happening online. And maybe I need to go check up on what's happening. Maybe oppressive is the wrong word, but this, this weight, this weighing, it's constant presence kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like she, we talked about the snap streaks that, right? Like like in Snapchat where you have to (laughs) answer business. Yeah. Where where you have to answer in 24 hours. Otherwise you break the streak. Right. So in that case, you could be like laying in bed or on your couch, but thinking about, you've got to get back to your phone to do that. Right. And so once it's with you, it's constantly with you. Yeah. She used the phrase constantly tending your snap streaks. And I really liked that phrase of like, we're tending to the digital, we're, we're attending to it, we're paying attention to it. And it's drawing, you know, it's something we have to cultivate and care for. And I, I love, by the way, as, as I know, her, she just knew like current tech, even though she's like a mom, a professor, has been around the block a few times. She can, she called herself a digital immigrant, but mm, she has right. some really great, like very current, very digital pop culture references all throughout <laughs> her book. I would say as a writer, she was really fun yeah. to read like that. Yes. I did uh, really enjoy reading her book and it, it carried me I along. I felt like she just lives much. in daily life like this and like not just with her age, but also right. with her like kids and her college students. She's very aware of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She has this quote that I really appreciated. She says, our problem may not be that we don't have enough time. Our modern plight is about managing our attention rather than managing our time. Mm. It has that sense of the imminence, the imminence of digital and what are we attending to? What are we paying attention to? And I find that so much in my own experience. When I wake up in the morning, what's the first thing I'm thinking about? What are my practices around my smartphone and my awareness of what's happening on TikTok and on Twitter and on Facebook and on Slack (laughs) and this constant awareness that it's there. I would say this year for me, I've really spent more time thinking about what are you doing with the first half hour of your day, the first 15 minutes of your day? Right. What are the first voices that are informing my day? And that includes my own internal voice. What are the thoughts, Mm. concerns, worries, fears, excitements that I'm thinking about? But also, does God have an imminent place in those first moments of my Mm -hmm. day? Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds really simple, but just that prioritizing of, is Twitter the first voice I hear? Is it the first thing I read? Does it frame my day? Or is it scripture? Is it the voice of God? I find it a struggle to to orient my day in the way that I desire for it to be oriented. 
I loved that she connected with similar examples. I think she was quoting Tish Warren, who we, you know, is great and just actually won a Christianity Today Book Award again. Again, but probably again. But, but she talked about Tish Warren trying not to do just negative, like don't touch my phone, yeah. but also doing a positive and making her bed every morning was not only her making her bed, but also a reason for mm. her not to grab her phone. Mm-hmm. And so that habit to reinforce order and beauty also helped her cancel the habit to grab the phone at uh, first. interesting. And, and I love that. So Felicia like cited that as an, a good example of how to do that. It sounds like you're doing that. I've, I've, sort of. I've, I've, <laughs> Maybe never, I've never been persuaded to make my bed. And well, that, that could is. be, that could be a thing that persuades me. I, by the way, I do make my bed. And so this is why I'm morally superior. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I, I will, I will give you that. But I think that's right. If we're going to try and remove a habit or remove that inclination, we have to replace it with something. And, and without that, it's a lost cause. We're just Pavlovian. We're going to reach for the thing that wants our attention. Yeah, we think our will is so strong and it ain't. It's just not. <laughs> we, we, we have to practice our way into another way of being. It's really good. Yep. Another thing that she said that I really appreciated, she talked about these default modes of technology, how apps are designed, how social media is designed, that everything on Facebook, on Twitter was a design decision by someone, whether it was intentional or not. Sure. There are these default modes. It's defaulting to notifying you. It's defaulting to pulling your contacts in from your phone. It's defaulting to posting publicly. And I'm going to date myself here. <laughs> it's like VCRs with their flashing 12 o'clock. You know, that's just the default, right? And most people don't change it because they don't know how or it's just too much work. All these defaults are things we just kind of let happen to us and they inform what, what our practices look like. And I think hmm. I think that's an underappreciated influence on our discipleship, on our habits, on our spiritual formation in our lives. You know me, I'm really intentional about how I manage all those defaults, all those notifications. I turn most of them off. There's lots of things that I try and not just let the default drive my habits and attention. But I, and I liked her subtlety on that because because she talks about small adjustments or small practices yeah. making a difference. And so like not just about throw away your phone and never touch it again, which yeah, is sometimes absolutely. these books are like that. Yeah. You know, like, you're def- like everything is cranky and it's destroying <laughs> your life. But she's talking about there are small adjustments that you can make, whether it's a notification setting or a habit. Yeah. Making small changes can make big differences. We just often don't take the time to make those small changes. But it also gives me hope that small things like making our bed can make <laughs> yeah. us more aware of God's presence. And it gives me hope that I don't have to do big things in order to grow spiritually. I will say, like you were saying, it's easy to be all or nothing on the smartphone. And I will say, as I read the book, that was a thing that I didn't get a clearer sense on that often our focus is around how we relate to the smartphone itself as a device. And I've heard you say this, but it's about what are we doing with the device? Not just how we relate to the device, but who are we relating to through the device? As I was listening to this interview, it caused me to start thinking about how do I manage the relationships with all these varieties of people? Because I encounter all sorts of different people through my smartphone. I encounter intimate friends, I encounter my family, I encounter friends, colleagues, acquaintances, strangers. Sure. I encounter all these sorts of people all in the same space. Yeah. Yeah. All right. located in my smartphone. Right. right. And it caused me to start thinking about 
okay, if I'm going to have a pattern of life, a pattern of relating through my smartphone to all these different people, what would that look like throughout the day? So it caused me to start thinking about what my day could look like if I used my smartphone to first connect with people who are in my inner circle and then moving to the next concentric circle and then a further circle out to those that are strangers or acquaintances. And then to slowly as the day comes to a close to bring it back to those inner circles and to think, okay, okay, could I, could I practice relating through my smartphone in a way that has a bit of a ebb and flow to it and that I move out into the public space through my smartphone, but then I move back into my inner space as well and those inner relationships and what could that look like for me and that's something i just started thinking about through this interview and i want to spend more time thinking about sounds like you have an app design idea maybe Ooh, yeah she would probably like that i think people will uh, will like the book a lot one part we didn't really cover with her and you didn't talk about it is that she has different steps in every chapter yeah that you can take in exercises really even practical com- even commitments to an ordered digital life but they're not like do all this at once, but she's like, just try this one thing this week and see how mm-hmm. that works for you. Yeah. So I think people will love that out of the book. Yeah. I, I found those super practical. There's some diagnostics there that you can just sort of do some reflections and she has some different options that you can try, right, right. which is really cool. Yeah. So you already picked up the book, but of course it, the book is Restless Devices. Recovering Personhood, Presence, and Place in the Digital Age. Which just came out just right at the very end of 2021. So it's new and people can find it out there. Yeah, good thoughts. We're glad to have Dr. Felicia Wusong on the Vice and Virtue. All right, Chris, it's time for Vice or Virtue. Today, it's bedspreads. <laughs> Um, well, since we've just agreed that I'm the one that makes the bed in my spiritual practices in the morning, I will say that there's a big controversy ethically between bedspreads and comforters. And duvet covers? <laughs> and duvet where, do, covers. where do duvet covers fall? I barely know what a duvet cover is. Um, no, like comforters being sort of the big fluffy ones and, and mm. bedspreads, I feel like being the staple of like the Motel 6. And then it's like, wow, you really, you really <laughs> killed it with that example because I was probably going to go for the, the non-fluffy bedspread. So in that sense, I really do prefer the comforter situation. It's also easier to make your bed. And so when you're getting up in the morning and trying to attempt your spiritual practice, it takes less time. Really? I'm, I'm sure uh, it's, I'm it's sure easier. efficiency was the entire goal of this, of, of, of uh, being very <laughs> spiritual. But I'm going to go with the bedspread, not being a comforter, makes it a vice. Mm, mm. Yeah, comforters are, it's kind of like how much like a cloud can we make it? Because you just want to be like floating Correct. on a cloud when you're Correct. sleeping, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like quilts as bedspreads. Okay. You know, I really like heavy bedspreads that like keep you, you know, pinned. Little cocoon. Pinned down on the bed. <laughs> Otherwise, you <laughs> yeah. might float away because right, 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 right. it's a cloud. So I very much like the, uh, yeah, the cocoon bedspread. I, I I have to say it's definitely a virtue for me. Not the Motel Six bread spread. That sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, but yeah. you know the quilt that your grandmother made. Yeah, that's a a fantastic generational blessing. Well, good. I think uh, you can let me know next time, Adam, whether you're rethinking the bed clothes situation has helped your spiritual progress and your restless devices. This episode was brought to you in part 
by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.